But, you know, I, I want to I hit some realism today because uh, I think for too many people, for too many Christians, especially for cultural Christians, but for too many Christians, we have misplaced resurrection hope. I think what we have now is resurrection hype. We come together on Sunday. Man, there's a great deal of fanfare. The stone has been rolled away. We're excited. We're singing songs. And that's great for Sunday. You know, they used to have the old adage. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it's kind of old-time religion. You had that Friday's coming. But Sunday's on its way, baby. They wave their hankies and, yeah, go on, brother. But I think now the church would sing a song that sounds kind of like, uh, Sunday's come, but Monday is on its way. Oh. Like somewhere along the way, we've misplaced the reality that what the resurrection accomplished for us is enormous every day. Every day of our lives. It's not just a, sadly enough, you know, I know some folks will put some kind of lawn sign out and, Resurrection. You know, you're going to see it. You drive through your neighborhoods. Don't knock on their doors and ask them if they're full of hype rather than hope. Don't do that. That's not the application for the message today. But I wonder. You know, it's like some hype. Resurrection. Ooh, put a sign out. Ooh, it's like Christmas decorations. But when you, who are you going to be on Monday? Just moping on Monday. Hyped on Sunday. Moping on Monday. You know, life goes on. Well, does the resurrection spill over into other categories of our lives? You know, historically, theologically, philosophically, it is the biggest event in human history. Now, not because every philosopher is signed on to say, everybody pay attention, this is the most important event, but every philosopher is trying to wrestle with human existence and life. And if truly life is bounded by birth and death, and that's all we have, well, then you will form a philosophy of life based on how to live that life. But if there's life beyond death, well, then that blows the lid off of philosophy. There's a whole new realm of thought that has to come into how we think. And we know theologically the centerpiece of the resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity. Look, look how the Bible says here. Yeah? You don't have notes today on purpose, uh, but I do want you to pay careful attention to the scriptures we're going to be reading through. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1. A couple of verses before we get to the main text this morning. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I titled the message this morning, We had hoped. What for what? We'll, we'll pick up that thought from Luke in just a moment. But look at what the, the Bible says about the significance of the resurrection. Romans 1 verse 3 says, Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, if there ever was a punctuation mark at the end of the sentence, it is the resurrection. At the end of this life, and all that Jesus said, and all that He stood for, and all that He did, all that He pointed to, you have an incomplete sentence if at the end of it there is no resurrection. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection. This is, this is no insignificant event. Uh, I think I remember one of the guys at the Alpha table in the first week or two telling me they had kind of snuck a question into the uh, discussion about whether or not Jesus' death and resurrection, you know, if it had occurred or it hadn't occurred, you know, would that have been okay? And it was amazing to see how many people at the table responded, well, you know, you know I'd still believe. I mean, I'd still believe in Jesus if, it, if that hadn't occurred. Really? That's a little frightening. But it is informing. A lot of people believe things just because they believe things, not because there's any substance to it. If Jesus Christ isn't resurrected, folks, let's all go home quickly. As a matter of fact, let's turn this into a bar room or something. Let's do something fun. All right, isn't that with 1 Corinthians? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 real quickly. This is how Paul brings the implications of the resurrection <clears throat> through imagining what if the resurrection hadn't occurred? What if this event was not a historic precedent that really did take place? 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. Paul says, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This isn't a nice thing anymore. Christianity is not a nice thing to have in the world. If Jesus Christ isn't really resurrected, then everything you believe is foolish and vain and empty. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's a big statement. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Have no comfort when you go to a funeral about where your loved ones might be. They've perished if Jesus Christ has not been resurrected. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christians are the sorriest sack of individuals you've ever come across. Right, we don't stand up and applaud. You know, I've used the example of Marshall Applegate who led a band of folks to believe that there was a, <clears throat> a cosmic spaceship trailing the Hale-Bopp comet and if you committed suicide, we could join them in another life. Nobody sits and looks at the people who committed suicide there in California in order to join that ship and go, oh, you know, that's, that's all right, isn't it? You know, but you know, it's, it's whatever folks want to believe. No, we see that as a tragedy. Listen, if Jesus Christ is not resurrected, then Christianity is a tragedy inflicted upon humanity. It's not just an optional belief that some people chose to believe it. Oh, well, bless them. It's a terrible tragedy. It's a huge problem. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. And that brings perspective to every issue going on in every person's life right here today. There's a lot of us here today, we're real worried about <clears throat> whether we'll be married, whether someone will love us enough to marry us, whether our parents accepted us or rejected us, whether the di- doctor's diagnosis coming back is going to be it's benign. Right, we're very concerned about these things. But listen, if the resurrection did not occur, can I just tell you, none of that matters a whole bunch. Because your one day pass to Disney World is quickly coming to a close. And if there's no resurrection, does it matter really whether you have cancer in your body? Because the sun is setting and they're going to close the park soon. And your little ride here is over. And does it really matter how long it took, whether you rode Dumbo or not? It's about to be over, just like that. And if there's nothing beyond this life, does it really matter how you lived? I mean, how many of you guys have gotten old enough to realize, wow, this ride goes by fast? Well, without the resurrection, yeah, you should be shaking your head, Al. <clears throat> as old as you are. Well, look, look at this thought from Michael Green in his book, Who is This Jesus? He highlights the fact that the resurrection has implications to it. There are effects of this resurrection. The same way that Paul highlights that if the resurrection didn't occur, there are implications. Well, if it did occur, if it did occur, there are implications. And the great thing is, these implications last past Sunday. They go right into Monday, real well. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, we can be very sure that he was who he claimed to be. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, we can be sure that the job he did of lifting the burden of the world's sin on the cross was complete and finished. That's quite a task. That's some good news. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, we can be sure that there is such a thing as life after death. And he is equipped to lead us there. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, we can be profoundly optimistic about the future of humankind. The future does not lie with the nuclear bomb or ecological disaster. It lies in the hands of the risen Lord of the universe. I I wish there were some folks who could just get, get some of this good news going on Monday. When you go watch the news and global warming tells you blah, 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 blah is going to happen. Oh, please don't pull your hair out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not an ecological problem going on around us. I don't, I don't know, and I know a lot of people don't know enough about knowing them, whether there really is or not. But suppose there is. 
Well, when you listen to that, listen to the resurrection. Listen to the God who overcame death. You really think God's concerned with global warming? Everybody was dead. I don't think the problem gets any harder than that one, you know? And the resurrection solves it. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, the very same power that raised Jesus from the tomb is available to raise his followers from various deaths and bondages in which they are themselves entangled. Well, that's some good news on Monday, isn't it? If Jesus really did rise from the dead, he is still around. If he is alive, why should I not meet with him? See, these are implications of a, of a God who really did come as a human being and rise from the dead. This is not just hype that we can sing about on Sunday and then face Monday as though Monday overwhelms us. The resurrection should show up on Monday as an incredible source of hope. If the resurrection is so important and significant and meaningful, why are so many Christians struggling with hope on Monday? Now, the good news I have for you is we're not, we're not unique in this category. I want to take us through the scriptures today. And I want to give you a glimpse of the, of the, the first guys who encountered the resurrection. They did not do well. I'm pretty sure you never have paid attention to this. Because all of our impression is, I got up this morning, you know, my first eyes are opening and now I'm thinking, I know it's Saturday, but I'm playing like it's Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. And I'm thinking, you know, I got Sandy Patty going through my head. Was it a morning like this? Did everybody wake up feeling that way? And you, know, and you just have these images that when the stone was rolled away and everybody moved in slow motion and it was great and... He's alive! And they were all rejoicing and, and all the grief and weight and sadness and confusion lifted from their lives. Oh, we're not reading the Bible. <laughs> Let me just give you a quick little timeline here. Here's, here's Jesus showing himself to folks. On Sunday, right away, we have Mary Magdalene gets an appearance along with Jesus. The women who come to the grave are greeted, and they get a revelation of the, of the resurrection. Simon Peter, somewhere on Sunday, is going to encounter Christ. It's not clear when he does, but he does encounter Christ by himself. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, who we're going to study in just a moment, encounter the risen Christ. The, the apostles who are in Jerusalem without Thomas on Sunday evening, they encounter the risen Christ. Then the apostles, eight days later, with Thomas present in Jerusalem, they encountered the risen Christ. And then there's the, the Sea of Tiberias. Remember the fishing trip in Galilee where seven of them have gone back to Galilee and they're all fishing and they're going to encounter Christ. Then there's the 11 on the mountain in Galilee where the Great Commission is given about two to three weeks perhaps after uh, Jesus' crucifixion. They're going to encounter Christ. Then there's an appearance to over 500. Then Jesus appears to James alone. Then he appears to all the disciples on, on Mount Olivet uh, when he goes to, into his ascension. And then at last he appears to Saul of Tarsus. But now let me just scoot back, though, right in proximity of when Jesus first appears to folks. And the resurrection becomes made known. People know this thing more than likely has occurred. And listen to how they respond. Turn to Mark chapter 16 with me, verse, verse 9, real quick. Glance through a few of these verses. Because you won't find these guys responding the way we would have thought they would have. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. It says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Oh, they're slow, but not slow motion rejoicing. Verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Verse 14. Afterward... 
he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Turn to John chapter 20 real quickly. John 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands and mark the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Remember, if you followed the story after John chapter 20, you get into John chapter 21. John chapter 21 is the fishing trip. It is the disciples traveling from Jerusalem about 75, 80 miles north to Galilee, where they're from, going back home, finding themselves in a familiar setting, perhaps scared to death, running for their lives. Uh, remember, uh, They've already, they've already seen Christ. And here they are in Galilee. And just the way that they get presented. You know, they're, they're sitting on the beach. I don't know what they're looking like, but, but they look like a bunch of mopers. They're moping around and Peter decides, I'm going to go fishing. Packs up, he gets on the boat, he goes fishing. They catch a ton of fish, 150-something fish. Come back to the shoreline, and then Jesus has shown up. Now they've jumped in, they've come back to the shoreline, they sit down having some breakfast going on. Jesus strikes up a conversation. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? It's always interesting. No one knows what the these are. But it doesn't make sense to me personally that he's asking him, do you love me more than the other disciples? In the setting here, you've got a bunch of guys who look like they're moping around, and they've gone back to Galilee, and these guys have gone back to their old jobs. They were fishermen. And Jesus asked them, Peter, the question, Do you love me more than these? I wonder if the these is the 150-something fish on the ground. Jesus, you know that I love you more than these. And tend to my sheep. It's almost like, can you, can you get back on board with me, Peter? Can you remember what you're supposed to be about? And he talks to him about mission. That's the same situation in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, where we get the great commission verses. But right before them, we hear this verse. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now this is a little different view of the disciples. Apparently, it can be very difficult on Monday for disciples of Jesus Christ to benefit from the resurrection. That's, this seems to be very apparent. Apparently, this is a hard thing to put on and walk around in. Let's, let's, let's take this one experience apart. Look at Luke 24. With me. Turn to Luke 24. This is where we'll get most of our insights on some disciples. This is the story on the road to Emmaus. Two disciples are traveling, and this is the first day. This is Sunday. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you, as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's an interesting response. You know, if, you, if you do much wrestling with apologetics and folks who want to argue what really happened with the resurrection, the crucifixion, 
uh, folks would say everything, but, well, he, he wasn't resurrected, so we've got to come up with another explanation. You know, I heard some guy on one of the Discovery Channels or one of those places the other day uh, saying something about, well, you know, what probably happened to him is what happened to every criminal who was crucified. You know, they pulled him down. They probably didn't have a place to bury him. They stuck him on the side of the road somewhere, and animals, the wild animals ate him, and his body's nowhere to be found. And, and people revisit this issue as though it happened in the corner and no one knew about it. This thing, this thing would have been covered by CNN. Right? This would have been live satellite feed. This would have outdone the OJ trial. Everyone knew what was going on. That's why these guys stop. And when Jesus asks this question, they, they stop and look at him like he has antlers. What, are the only guy in town who doesn't know what's going on? What kind of a question is that? Obviously, everyone knew about the trial and about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. After he explains, and then verse 19, it says, And Jesus said to them, What things? <laughs> this is kind of like a parental question. You ever wonder about God asking questions? I mean, first of all, he's God. Does he have to ask questions? Doesn't he know everything? So he walks up to them and he asks the first question. So, what are you guys talking about? And then he asks the second question. What things? It's, it's interesting for God to ask questions. And it's kind of like, Adam, where are you? you know, <laughs> that's not a question for Adam. You know, it's kind of like, okay, God, you would have a better GPS than I would. You know exactly where I am. So it's always be careful when God asks you a question. There's a different reason than his search for information here. <laughs> Children, be aware when your parents ask you questions sometimes. They already know the answers. There's a different reason for asking it. It's a godly reason, apparently. I feel very supported in the questions that I now ask. He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Hello, guys, you're using the right words. Well, maybe clue in here. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen, even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, can you understand? These guys are moping on their way to Emmaus. When Jesus stops and asks them a question, they turn to him. They, it's kind of like they stop and give him one of those looks like. But they look sad. You know, are you the only guy in town who doesn't know what's going on? And they just, they're forlorn. We had hoped. They're so disappointed. And Jesus highlights the fact that they are disillusioned. They're slow of heart to believe. Ken Hughes, his commentary on Luke, says they were so depressed and so negative in their confusion that it was beyond their capacity to make the obvious connection. <laughs> Cleopas had, it, had let it all out, his confusion, his depression, his disillusionment, his shrinking faith, his anger. Right? They just got, they'd use words like the third day, Angels have shown up helping them understand. Right? Is, is it like Jesus kept this so hush-hush? Didn't he say he was going to rise again? Didn't he explain that to him? Didn't he do the third day? Didn't he do the Jonah thing? I mean, what, wasn't there some teaching here? And yet they don't get it. When it's time to apply it, they don't get it. Look in verse 21. Kind of lets us into their forlornness. But we... We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Now question, what were they hoping for? This is my question for us. We had hoped, but for what? Because, see, they came to the resurrection. They came to the event of Jesus Christ, the end of his life. 
with a certain expectation. They had actually a misinformed hope. We had hoped for this, and we got this instead. What had they hoped for? Because whatever it was that they were hoping for caused them to miss the event. Well, if you follow the teaching, the culture, the time, uh, what they were hoping for is they were hoping for a Messiah who would be a political king, who would come and overthrow the government and establish a new kingdom. These guys, even after all these encounters, right up to Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1, they're still asking this question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, these guys really were slow to believe a lot of things. Kind of makes me feel like, you know, I think I could have been one of them. (laughs) You know, if I look back now, I think I could have been just as clueless as they were. (laughs) They were thinking that when the Messiah came... He was going to come, he was going to come, he was supposed to be a prophet like Moses. Remember when Moses came to deliver the people, he came and delivered them out of the oppression of Egypt. He came and overthrew a government. And if you, if you understand this, you understand a whole bunch of the questions and the interactions that these guys had with Jesus. If Jesus talked about suffering and dying, and these guys would talk about a moment later, uh, you know, the sons of Zebedee and their mom are asking... Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my kids sit on the right and the other one on the left? You know, what is she thinking? Is she looking at a throne in heaven? Then you and I read that and go, what kind of a knucklehead question is that? You know, don't you know that Jesus sits to the right hand of the Father? There's already somebody in that seat, lady. She's not thinking that. Right? She's thinking cabinet member. You know, she's thinking panel. You know, he's going to be on the advisory panel. When Jesus comes in and he's the king, and oh, I can see the coronation, and there's my boys and all the crowd, and we're just watching them put the new government in place. That's what they're thinking. Their arguments about greatness in the kingdom of God. Do you understand why it's like Jesus looks at them like, what on earth are you talking about? Well, they're talking about being great here. I'm going to be great in the kingdom on the earth. And we're fighting as a human. No, I'm going to be in charge of the army. You're not going to be. And you can't even fight. I mean, what kind of conversations do these guys have fighting over greatness? And to some great degree, I mean, I know this sounds really pathetic, but I don't know if these guys were looking for tax codes to change. I mean, we're under the oppression of the government. They keep taxing us. The taxes went up again. Won't be that way when Jesus' kingdom comes. I mean, this is how they were thinking. And whatever it was that they were hoping for, it caused them to miss what they should have been hoping for. And they spend days, weeks, moping around, not getting it. Listen to this thought from J.C. Ryle. He says, let us mark how weak and imperfect was the knowledge of some of our Lord's disciples. We're told that the two disciples confessed frankly that their expectations had been disappointed by the crucifixion of Christ. We trusted, or we had hoped, said they, that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. A temporal redemption of the Jews by a conqueror appears to have been the redemption which they looked for. A spiritual redemption by a sacrificial death was an idea which their minds could not thoroughly take in. Ignorance like this, at first sight, is truly astounding. Yet, ignorance like this... Is deeply instructive. It shows us how little cause we have to wonder at the spiritual darkness which obscures the minds of careless Christians. How many of us have resurrection hype because we don't understand it biblically? And it doesn't benefit us and serve us once we stop singing these songs this morning. Tomorrow, a bunch of us get to, or have to, depending on your choice of words, go eat dinner with family. (laughs) And it's still Resurrection Sunday, technically, tomorrow. But for some of us, that'll be a miserable, challenging experience, right? You know, where's the hope of the resurrection in that moment? We're done singing songs here. We just got to go be with them. Oh, well... Okay, this needs to touch our lives. Now, question for us, because these guys had misplaced their hope in the resurrection. When you hoped in Jesus Christ, what did you hope for? This is going to very much inform us on Monday. When you hoped in Jesus Christ, what did you hope for? 
See, here are these guys. They have set their hope on some temporary fix. Jesus fixed this temporary situation. Now, their temporary situation was the oppression of the Roman government. The fact that they lived in a territory that was occupied by force by the Romans who, you know, played according to their own, own rules and made life miserable. Now, if you just take Romans out of that and insert whatever you want to, don't you have some things in your life and people in your life who play according to their own rules and make your life miserable? Don't you have some of that? See, if we're not careful, we're just we're, we're hoping in Jesus coming to fix the temporary maladies of our lives. I think back through the folks that I've known who have trafficked in and out of the church setting. What brings them in and when they depart. What brings them in quite often for many is a profound awareness that my life is broken in some category. It's kind of like it's come under the oppression. My marriage isn't working. It's fallen apart. I've got to do something desperate. I turn to God. But it's not so much a turning to God for what God has done in the crucifixion and the resurrection of His Son. It's a turning to God for Him to fix what's broken in my temporary life. Listen, that's not completely wrong. It's just partially right. Everybody becomes aware of God through the fact that my life doesn't work right. That's not wrong. It's a problem, though, if that's where you stay. And it was a problem for these guys. And too many folks that come in because there's a season of oppression that either comes through health issues, folks who are diagnosed a certain way and they're on their back and they're desperate and they come, you know, what's going to happen when you feel better? When the diagnosis changes, how will you respond to Christ? You went through a series of bad events. And this circumstance happened, that loss took place, that financial thing collapsed and you lost your business and... Life feels heavy and oppressive, and we come to Christ. Well, if we've put our hope in Him fixing things temporarily, it's very likely we've missed a great deal of the significance of the resurrection. Everything Mr. Michael Green said in the beginning of this section doesn't translate that way. I'm enamored with my situation, and I want Christ to come touch my situation. I put my hope in Him to touch my situation. That was just the first stepping stone of helping us realize the cross and the resurrection were about some much bigger things. Question, are you experiencing a sense of hopelessness and disillusionment? Are you experiencing that? It may be because of what you're hoping for God to do rather than what he's actually already done. Right? These guys were missing some things here. They weren't noticing some things here, some very significant things here. While they, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. Well, he did. You didn't notice that. No, the Romans are still in power. We're still paying taxes. I don't know who's going to mistreat me next on the streets. You know... It's an interesting vantage point for disciples to learn something here. These guys, they're moping along. They're sad. They're disillusioned. And they've taken some steps here. They've taken steps of faith to follow Christ. Many of them have they've left jobs. They've left homes. They've left family. They've had relatives tell them they're crazy. You're nuts. They put their life on the line. They got in difficult circumstances. Now Jesus has been arrested. I mean, everything's kind of blown up. They've taken a great risk here. And all they've done is do exactly what Jesus called them to do. They followed him. They believed in him. They put their trust in him. And now where am I? They're disillusioned. They're sad. Frustrated. Fearful. But can you and I have a vantage point that they don't have? That's how they feel. Now, can you and I go behind the scenes here? Okay, behind the scenes, there's nothing wrong. Is there? Behind the scenes, everything is going exactly according to plan. If you had a checklist, right, uh, arrested, accused, no legs broken, crucified, buried, three days later, uh, resurrected, and you got another box coming, and Pentecost is right around the corner. Everything is going exactly according to plan. And these guys are miserable while God's plan is unfolding exactly as it was supposed to. Now, you and I can sit back and look at these guys and say, you guys are knuckleheads. But the problem is, then I have to insert my name right behind theirs, don't I? 
because there's no difference today in my life. Everything behind the scenes is going exactly according to God's plan. Well, if that's true, Keith, then why are you moping around? Why do somebody, Jesus or whoever, come interrupt you and, and you're sad, slow of heart to believe what God has said? Here's a fact. You can write this out. Fact of life. You will have seasons where your expectations and understandings are out of step with what God is really doing. It's true of those disciples. It will be true of us. You will have seasons where your expectations and your understandings are out of step with what God is really doing. And we have great benefit here as we read the story. Not a jot or tittle has been missed by God. His plan is flawless and it's coming to pass exactly the way it should have. And the disciples who are following Christ are sad, disillusioned, fearful, confused, not understanding. Verse 25, Jesus analyzes their situation. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. When Jesus speaks here, now he puts his finger on here is your problem. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here here is their problem. And this this is an endemic problem for all Christians. It is belief mixed with unbelief. And it will be our experience all throughout our lives. It's not that they didn't believe anything that the prophets had said. It's that they only believed some of what the prophets had said. How many of you know, when you're a Christian here, I can get you today, no matter how miserable your life is, no matter how much you're you're angry at people or God or, or circumstances, I can get you to agree with me about a bunch of things in the Bible right now. But if I start quoting some other things to you right now that cross you, you'll shut down on me in a heartbeat, won't you? You're hostile to that. See, because I don't believe all that the Bible says when I'm walking in unbelief. I don't believe all of it. Now, either I don't believe all of it because I don't know all of it, and we'll look at that in a moment, or I don't believe all of it because I don't want to believe all of it. And that's an issue. That's a challenging issue. I think there's a reality that all of us need to face that There are certain things that we want to believe that the Bible says. We want to believe them. And there are certain things we don't want to believe that the Bible says. Kent Hughes thought here on these guys. He says, certainly they believe the prophets, but just as certainly they did not believe all that the prophets had said. They had read and believed the prophets selectively as they embraced the Messiah ruler passages ignoring the passages that prophesied his sufferings. That's so true. Welcome, by the way, to popular theology. Welcome to the prosperity gospel. That does actually find its substance in the Bible, selectively reading verses that support the thought that God wants people to prosper, that God wants people to be in health and to not have disease and to be wealthy. And, you know, and the Bible does say that. But the problem with that is that it is a selective reading of the Bible. It's the same kind of reading they did. They went back and read and found all the verses where the Messiah would be a king. He would rule. He would sit upon a throne. Throne of David. Right? I mean, you remember, this is the crowd who threw the palm branches last week in the, in the road. Said, Hail, son of David. Well, what were they thinking here? Won't be too much longer. We're going to be in charge around here. All this racial stuff that was taking place, the Gentiles and the Romans oppressing them. No, no, no. This is our land, and it's not too long, baby. These guys are gone. We're in charge. That's what they're thinking. And they could find Bible verses that said something like that. Maybe not quite with that attitude, but close. But there's lots of Bible verses about the Messiah suffering. There's lots of Bible verses about the Messiah dying. Blood being shed. Behold the Lamb of God 
That's a Messiah verse, right? But they had selectively not read that verse. And listen, you and I can go back and selectively read the Bible. Because we want life to be a certain way. We want this circumstance to work out a certain way. And I can go into the Bible and make the Bible say that that will happen that way. And kind of leave out the elements of suffering that are there. Listen, I think this is growing more and more difficult for us. We live in a society that loves comfort. In every realm, we love comfort. We live for comfort and we pray for comfort. We don't want anything difficult going on in our lives. My goodness, I mean, if the air conditioning goes out. My wife and I walked by a Starbucks going to a restaurant the other night and that big sign in the window, big, huge apology, the air conditioning was out. (laughs) Yeah. Open the doors. I mean, but for us, it's like, no, it's not comfortable. Oh, you know, we just want comfort at all costs. We want our cars to be comfortable a certain way. We have, we have like one chair in our house that's comfortable, I think. Everybody wants to sit in it, I can tell. It's at one place in the room where it's comfortable. It's like, you know, how many of us in my family? Nine? Um, we're all fighting to sit in this same chair, right? Because it's comfortable. We want comfort. We live for it. We love for it. We interpret the will of God based on it. Listen, you, you start analyzing your prayers. Oh, God. Oh, God, don't let that happen. Oh, God. Why not let that happen? That would be painful. That would be uncomfortable. I don't want to have to go through that. And, God, I know you wouldn't have to go through that. Want me to go through that. Listen, I'm not, I'm not quoting anybody here, but I'm probably quoting many of you here. But to the number of people who have come to me and said, God would not want me to be unhappy. Now, please don't come and say that to me. Okay, you just won't be in the mood for the response. You know, because in that moment, <clears throat> all you're interested in being happy is being happy. And in that moment, all I'm going to be interested in is being biblical. I don't find God saying, oh, Jesus, you are going to die on the cross so that everybody can be happy all the time. Happiness gets determined by what, by what I think is good for me. And I don't always think the right things are good for me. Trans, being transformed from the selfish, sinful, center of the universe individual that I am into the image of Jesus Christ, that's a good thing. It's also a painful thing. It also involves God afflicting my soul. You know how hard it is? I mean, this is not hard for God, but it, is, it seems hard for, for God to get my hands off the steering wheel. I hold on. I fight, I wrestle, I've got ideas. I've got ideas from the Bible, I'll argue with God with them. But it's partial reading. I didn't read all the scriptures. I haven't incorporated enough of the insights of God into this. Well, I fight from my way over his way. You know, one of the things that is, is terribly missing in their partial reading of scripture is the biggest component of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Show me in these first 40 days any disciples talking about the atonement. It's it's unbelievably missing. They're moping around because the politics and the tax structure hasn't changed. They're confused. Guys, did you miss something? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are completely forgiven. You are right with God at this moment. There no longer remains any condemnation. Now, I know Paul's going to write this much later on, but it's true now. And no one talks about it. What were they talking about when they were fishing? Jesus. Oh, so great to see you. We were just talking about the atonement. How you were the Lamb of God. Oh, it's incredible. There's no discussion going on like this. These guys have missed so much. Wow, they're trying to cling to such little bitty things. Doesn't that describe us? I mean, here, we depressed lately because we're having a conflict with somebody. We can't seem to fix it. There's a conflict going on. It's an important person and we're just depressed over it. And we're walking around like that conflict is a bigger reality to us than the fact that the conflict that I once had with God has been erased. God is not at odds with me. God is not against me. I am not his enemy. There is no longer a conflict here. Or maybe we were depressed this last week because we couldn't pay a bill. There was a debt that we owed. We can't pay it. Oh, what are we going to do? Walking around. Okay, that's a serious issue. Got to deal with it. But what about a bigger 
issue. What, what about not letting our hope get eclipsed by things? What about the dramatic reality that the debt of my sin has been 100% paid? I don't owe God anything. The debt has been completely paid. Now, how can I let I can't pay this bill override that bill got paid? Now, why are these things casting shadows on this thing on Monday? When the resurrection pronounces everything Jesus said is true. This is all true for us. Notice what Jesus does here. He's going to redirect their thoughts. In Luke 24, verse 27. It says, In beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I want to highlight three things here, and I'm going to do it really quickly. That when Jesus encounters moping disciples, doubting disciples, and he encounters it a lot, he does a few things. I want to just highlight what they are because I think they're significant for us. When we are moping, when we are facing doubts and a lack of hope that the resurrection should inform us to have. The first thing he does with these guys is he takes them deeper into the scriptures. He, he basically, as a byproduct, says, you guys are miserable because you don't know enough truth. He criticizes them. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he informs them, didn't you know this? Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? Let me start from the beginning. And he takes them into scriptures. He didn't say, guys, I know you don't know this exists, but let me introduce you to something called a Bible. They already had all this teaching. They already heard him teach on it. But they didn't know it, they didn't own it, and they were not deep in it. This is an interesting thing. This is, this is Jesus dealing with the depressed. That's what they are. These guys are moping along, they're depressed. And what does he do? He opens up a Bible study to them. Now listen, I, I, I know when, you, when your emotions are heavy and you are underneath a cloud, sometimes what you want to do when, when people want to give you the Bible is you want to say, you know, you don't... Back off, okay? You don't understand. I have a real problem. You're trying to give me the Bible. I have a real problem here. Well, it's interesting. Jesus says your real problem gets solved by seeing the truth more accurately. Ken Hughes. Very interesting statement. He says, what a grief. They would have been spared if they had only known and believed God's word to begin with. If we find ourselves hurting and despairing and do not find that Scripture speaks to our condition, it is not because the Bible has failed us, but because we do not know it well enough. We cannot be profoundly comforted by that which we do not know. That's a thought worth meditating on. Listen, when life tips us over and we get disoriented by it and we're looking for some profound comfort, it's not going to happen with a casual knowledge of this word. If you weren't here last week, you absolutely need to get Matt's teaching that he did last week on our need to, to stay as learners and the, the need that we have for the word of God. Of a casual knowledge of God's Word. It's like this partial knowledge for them. It affects our faith. It affects their emotions. And it will affect our emotions. And it will affect our faith exactly the same way. Now, I don't remember who it was. I don't think it was Charles Spurgeon who originally said, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, but rather that it has been found and left untried. There are many, many times when the truth of Scripture comes to us and we set it down and we, we don't wrestle for its application in our lives. It's been found, but it's been left untried. 
rather than wrestling through to, to belief. These guys were suffering because they had failed to see what was there all along. It had always been there. An interesting insight here, and this is, this is, this is a very important insight. I'm going to say that I'll try to not offend folks too badly here. Um, you know, the problem that they have is they brought so much bias to the Word of God. See, for years, the oppression of Rome had been mounting and mounting and mounting so that people began to interpret the Scriptures a certain way. Life squeezed them hard, and the scholars and the scribes and Pharisees and those who would instruct, they began to speak about the Word of God a certain way. So throughout their life, they kept hearing about this King Messiah who would come, and He would rule, and He would take things over. They had heard that and heard that and heard that, and they began to read the Bible and only see that in the Bible as well. They had been predisposed and conditioned so that when Jesus comes and they're standing, you know, some of these guys were former disciples of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why aren't those guys jumping up and down in slow motion after the crucifixion and the resurrection going, finally, our sin has been removed. So they had some huge biases to overcome. And so do you and I. We have biases. We come to Christianity with huge biases. I don't know what religious background everybody comes from here. I came from a Catholic background. I brought all kinds of ideas. Some of them were Catholic, some of them were Keats. I mean, if you're Catholic, I think you know what I mean. I mean, sure, the Catholic Church says some things, and then we make up some other things, and we kind of draw some ground in between, and we say, that's what we believe. I believed all kinds of things. And if I believe them, if my mom and them believe them, and my grandparents believe them, next thing you know, you come to the Bible, and the Bible clearly says something different. What are you going to do? Well, hopefully, at least you can even hear it. I didn't for years, but I do remember picking up a Bible and reading, and all of a sudden realizing, this is not what I've always heard. There are different elements here. These guys had some real biases to overcome. But the only way for you and I to benefit from the Word of God is to know it deeply, to let it speak to us. And that's where Jesus takes those who are doubting and moping. Secondly, you don't need to turn here, but in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus encounters them on the mountain, and it says, some worshipped him and some doubted. The next statement Jesus makes is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He immediately mobilizes them. In their doubt, see, there's, there's nothing that helps foster doubt, fear, and bad thinking more than doing nothing. See, if you're having thought, and this is a rule of thumb, everybody should put this on. If you're having thought problems in your life, doing nothing is a bad thing for you to be doing. Because you're having a hard time with your thoughts. And if you do nothing, you give your thoughts a larger opportunity to continue to think and continue to think the wrong thing. So Jesus immediately, first he points them in Luke, he points them to the word of God. Secondly, he points them to the mission. I'm sending you out. Get ready to go. Now, the funny thing is, as the more we pay attention to these guys, these guys look a little clueless. Go into all the world. Just don't share your goofy ideas with them yet. I mean, it's, it, now you see why the, the third thing I'm going to highlight here. The third thing that's very important that Jesus says, and you see this in Luke chapter 24 in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, is he tells them, go into all the world, but hold on one second. Don't go anywhere until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, if you study the disciples in this condition for these 40 days, those verses have made more sense to me than ever. You know, it's theologically, you can't you can't take apart the work of Jesus Christ and say this part's more important than that part. This kind of doesn't work because they all kind of tie together. You can't say the, the cross was the most important thing. Well, not without the resurrection, it wasn't. Well, then the resurrection was the most important thing. Well, the resurrection occurred and these guys remained knuckleheads. Well, then Pentecost was the most important thing. See, all these things had to happen. They're all very, very, very important things. But what Jesus does in Luke 24 and, and Acts chapter 1 is he says, wait right here until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And let me just put those three things before you, because, you know, maybe we're here today and we're going to walk out of here. You know, kind of hyped. It's Resurrection Sunday. Hyped. 
man, Jesus, the tomb is empty. Monday, you're going to get a bill in the mail. The conflict situation is returning. Your company is still closing an office and you may lose your job. That, that's coming on Monday. Right? In that moment, what will fix our sense of disoriented doubt and despair and fear? Well, it will be one, to renew our minds in the truth. And that has to happen all the time, not just when we get to a crisis. Two, to embrace the mission. Whether the details of our lives, of tax structures and political figures and jobs and locations where we live, whether those things get worked out or not, you and I are called to the Great Commission. If my face is pointed like a flint, that to the day that I die, I am about building the kingdom of God. Whether that's building it with a lot of money or a little bit of money. Building it by getting along with those people or getting along with these people. Whatever that might, the details of that might be, my task is to fulfill the Great Commission while I'm here upon the earth. And if I shrink back from that, I'm usually going to do it because I've hoped in something else. And it's not happening. And I'm mad. And I'm depressed. And I'm bothered. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at you right now because you're saying this to me. <laughs> You know who you are. <laughs> Renew minds in truth. Secondly, embrace the mission. Third, receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's like, you, you know, in steps one and two, Jesus only builds the appliance. The appliance doesn't work until you plug it in. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not an optional issue. I don't think we can do these three things and remain in this moping Monday stance that these guys walked in even under the shade of the resurrection. In every one of these circumstances, even the guys in Luke, even while they're moping along, they clearly already know he's not in the tomb. Angels explain that to the people that we know and have walked with for quite a while, that we trust. They're not lunatics. They're telling us something that just happened. And it was the third day. How many times did Jesus mention the third day? Oh, yeah, the third day. What was that about? There was plenty of opportunity for them to believe something here. But yet they did not. God wants the resurrection to be more than hype. It's supposed to be hope for us. Hope on Monday. Not just hype on Sunday. Let's stand up together. I thank you that this morning, as we are gathered here, Lord, as Michael Green says in his book, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, he is still around. If he's alive, why should I not meet with him? Lord, I thank you that the resurrection puts you in this room this morning with us. Thank you that you're just not a historic figure on the pages of a book somewhere. But you are alive here, today, right now. And Lord, I pray that you would find your way throughout this building right now. Lord, you know how many of us have been affected by your resurrection in a way that's hype and how many have been affected in a way that is hope. God, you know the emotional makeup of folks that are here. God, you know what we're responding to. You know what we're anxious about. You know where our fears are. You know what it is that makes us difficult for others to be around us. God, you know all those things. Lord, you know whether we are head down, walking on a road to Emmaus, sort of looking at our lives saying, I had hoped. 
I had hoped that by now I would have been married. I had hoped that we would have had children. I had hoped that my life would have looked like that guy's life. I certainly didn't hope that my body would be in the physical condition that it's in. I had hoped for something different. Lord, now you know that when we do that, we are often doing that by setting aside the most important truths of our lives. Your resurrection has changed our world. These bodies are temporary. And though they don't work correctly all the time, you could heal us now, but you will heal us later. And you will give us resurrection bodies. Something like the one you have now. God, our circumstances here, they are temporary. And Lord, even if we could tweak some of them, Lord, if we were honest, we look around and we realize marriage doesn't make people happy. There are many unhappy marriages. Children, having them doesn't make people happy. There are many unhappy people with children. Or these things that we think would so fix us really wouldn't fix us. But your resurrection does. Because you are present here today. You are alive today. And you have told us that your spirit has come to live in us in order to lead us into the truth. So that we can actually see these truths and benefit from them. And embrace the fact that in this room there are many here this morning. Lord, you know them by name. You are not indifferent. Who are suffering. They're being stretched. Their faith is being challenged. Lord Jesus, everything you said was true. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heed, I have overcome the world. I tell you these things. That in me, you may have hope. Lord, thank you that this morning hope is available. And it's only available because you validated everything you said and everything that you appeared to be on this earth by being raised from the dead. Hmm. Spirit of God, right now, would you hover over us, brood over us, birth again in us the truths of Scripture. Open our hearts to your word. Lord, may we not merely hear something that today sings well but doesn't function well tomorrow. God, we will encounter difficulty tomorrow. It could be seated across the table from somebody that has been a real problem in our lives. And our emotions will be affected. But there's a greater truth. Oh, Lord, my sins are forgiven. I'm accepted forever as your son. You are preparing a future and a hope for me. There are mansions being built. I'm going to live in one. Lord, what revelation, what amazing revelation needs to inform my moments of moping. Oh, Lord, touch your church this morning. These are great truths, Lord. They were great for them. We want them to be great for us. And we have your spirit. We don't need to wait like they do and walk through a season of confusion. Holy Spirit, you are here today to lead us into the truth right now. We do have that over them. We are grateful. Lord, I pray this morning. You would take the resurrection from the category of hype and put it into the category of hope in our hearts. God, I pray for any person who's here this morning who's known religious information. God, they've been around church and Bible and Easter settings. They've heard stories. But Lord, in the, the integrity of their heart, they would wrestle to find a benefit that has affected them. They're much more aware of sadness, disappointment, being displeased with life. Thoughts about you are foreign and few. Is anyone here this morning like that? Lord, would you come now and open their heart to you in a new way, in a way that causes them to realize there's more.
That's more of a relationship with God than what I've known. Or would you overcome the biases that may be here? Like these folks thought they had it figured out, thought they understood right, but yet they were missing something all along the way. Lord, would you right now let real questions come into hearts? And Lord, would you flood in in that moment and inform them if they would open their life to you completely and surrender to you today by faith? You would come in. And you'd fill their life and you'd give them your Holy Spirit and you'd begin to teach them truth and write them upon their hearts so that they might have joy and hope even in the midst of trial and tribulation. So Lord, thank you for these insights from your word. As we close now in song, Lord, enlarge in our lives this event called the resurrection. What an event! Lord, thank you for moving us from thinking the book ends at the last breath. No, it does not. There are chapters afterward that are better than all the ones that came before. Oh, Lord, this is incredible news. Lord, help us every day, every day, not just today, every day, to live in the shadow of this great news. In Jesus' name.